0: Today, we have two very distinguished scholars, and I would have to typify them both also in a sense as um, uh, activists uh, in in trying to help support um, working people, community uh, people, and coalitions and collaborations between folks. But these gentlemen um, are now associated with UNO, and um, Max has... um, Are you living in New Orleans full-time? Yes,
1: yes, yep.
0: So he's a convert. He's another (laughs) one of those um, folks who fell in love with this. uh, I call it an abusive mate. New Orleans is definitely, um, uh, has that kind of power over us. And then it it can be kind of abusive at times because it's not the easiest place. They, you know, it was, I often say it was Aaron, I'm sorry, Art Neville who coined the expression, the big easy. My husband does not concur with that. He says no, nope, it's a little difficult. And as wonderful a place as this it is, it's, it's not the easiest place in the world to um, make things happen that you want. On the other hand, if you are determined and you have the power to do things without help, this is a great place to do it because there's plenty of room for folks to um, make things happen here. So Max, in coming to the University of New Orleans, and I want to hear about what you're actually going to be teaching, your faculty work. But I also want to know what you're hoping to achieve here. And I want to understand what you were doing in Texas that in a way informs what you're going to be doing here. And then Steve is going to help us understand what he's hoping you will bring to UNO and the city. OK, so rock and roll. All
1: right, well, I'll go first then. Um, I'm I'm excited to hear what Steve says about that too. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I'm Max Crockmal, and new to UNO. Uh, I I spent the last decade plus in Texas, in Fort Worth, um, which was a extremely abusive place to live, actually, um, and one with maybe less uh, charm and fun than New Orleans. On the flip side, so uh, I feel like I've I, um, you know, actually come to a place that seems uh, uh, more. Uh, inviting and and flexible <laughs> than where I've been, and um, Fort Worth taught me a lot, uh, you know, I, I, um, I originally grew up in Reno, Nevada, um, and and then worked in the labor movement in California and other places, um, went to graduate school in North Carolina and kind of immersed myself in, in the South and Southern studies and learning about the history of the Black Freedom Movement, um, and then came to Texas uh, as a graduate student to do research and really understand. Um, I was trying to make sense of how labor unions could be better coalition partners, uh, and how people could build coalitions around race and class that truly transcended those lines. Um, and I and I wanted to understand and think about that in a context that was multiracial, multi-ethnic, and not just black and white. You know, having grown up in Nevada and California um, and spent time in Latin America, I was eager to connect Latino studies with, with black studies um, and to think about how those. Um, liberation movements evolved in tandem and in conversation with each other. And so I, um, I wrote a dissertation on Texas that then led me to living there full time and, uh, and teaching there and, um, and getting to, to write a book called Blue Texas that's all about that story of coalition building among Black, uh, Latino, Latina and white civil rights activists, political activists, um, labor organizers uh, from the 1930s into the 1960s, and, and I'm a historian by training, and, and so um, I was kind of looking to the past to see if we might learn how to organize better in the present, um, you know, particularly in the struggle to to emancipate Texas from the oligarchs that run it, and um, <laughs> we're, we're, we have a long way to go on that front, but, um, you know, the, the the great thing about being in Texas was that my work was so immediately applicable to the world around me. I was able to connect with lots of present day activists and, um, and not just speak at their meetings, but actually, you know, get my get deeply involved in, in community organizing and, and coalition building in, in Fort Worth and beyond. And um, I came uh, sort of got pulled into doing a lot of work uh, around immigrant rights um, and uh, struggles uh, to defend DACA recipients uh, and others. And then also to roll back a 287G immigration enforcement agreement in our community. Um, and that also led us to doing work to do political empowerment. Um, you know, Fort Worth is the 13th largest city in the United States. Uh, it's majority folks of color, but it's run by uh, a small number of wealthy white oil families. And, um, and they're working really hard to keep it as the last conservative city in America. And so uh, we are engaged in that uh, struggle. Um, we built, uh, began working with decarceration with um, African American activists on building those alliances and doing work around um, carceral state reform or overhaul. Um, right now, folks there are um, all uh, attending the the trial of uh, the murder of Tatiana Jefferson, who was, um, you know sort of made national news when she was killed while playing video games in the middle of the night with her young nephew um so in any case the, all of that sort of grassroots social movement work shapes my thinking it shapes my writing i've done a bunch of oral history interviews which um, have taught me a ton and uh as a as a scholar i i kind of combine archival work with oral history with participant observation and and really um Take my cues when I'm interpreting all of these things from the folks who indirectly affected communities that have um, welcomed me into their lives and, and taught me um, a lot. And then I try to produce work in solidarity with them, and that helps to advance, um, you know, their their issues on their terms as best as I can. Um, so yeah, that's the kind of work I want to do in New Orleans too. Um, to think about how to embed myself here and and do something that's useful to our community.
0: Um, when I first came here uh, from the South, pause, Bronx, <laughs> um I was um, aware of the fact that Louisiana at the time was one of the most democratic. Um, I would not so go go so far as to say liberal, but definitely mm-hmm. labor oriented. They had unions, they were strong. It was a manufacturing state. Before, the move from the north to the south of manufacturing before manufacturing moved offshore altogether. So um, I, I came to a place that had um, a strong labor history. And then right about the time I got here, and I don't remember the exact year, maybe Steve knows, it was around 73, four, five, right in there. Um, they passed right to work legislation in the state. That pretty much, in my mind, crushed the labor movement. And I and I knew a lot of people in the labor movement. I was actually, at the time, a um, reporter for WDSU, the NBC, local NBC affiliate. And I covered all the labor stories because that was a, a field of knowledge of mine. And um, what I tried to do is explain why people were on strike other than, oh, we can't get a bus to go to Canal Street. Today, because oh, those terrible labor people have armed strike. I tried to explain why. And, um, and then you had this collapse, it seems, of the labor movement. And, and right now, the most active union uh, still is the service uh, employees union. Um, Siu, is that how it's? I think it's, it's an it's a, seiu. Yeah. Seiu, um, but it's it's kind of depressing for someone who uh, you know believes in the in the labor movement to to see the state of it, not just here but in in many places in America. On the other hand, there certainly seems to be hints of an awakening on the part of tech workers and service workers around the country to the value of organizing. Um, that they had lost over the years because the labor movement had been in decline. But maybe there's something new happening now. Um, how do you view what I just said?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. And, uh, and so, yeah, your Cornell training's coming through. But, I, I, you know, as a labor historian, I would say, um, you know, first that we have to think about the labor movement broadly uh, beyond the traditional form of unions um, you know, the, the sort of big story of the post-war period was unions becoming much more bureaucratic, um, much more connected with management, much less interested in organizing, less dynamic. Um, even though they would provide support for civil rights activists financially and otherwise legally, they um, they were not always intimately involved as organizations in the freedom struggle. And, and in fact, you know, Black and Latino workers had to build caucuses within... Labor movements to fight employment discrimination and to fight to really democratize in those unions and and make them more useful in their communities. So that's one part of the context, along with right to work. Um, you know, right to work certainly had an, has had a negative effect on unions. I think it's also a sort of convenient excuse for um, for labor leaders. Um, and that it is possible, in fact, to organize unions in, in right-to-work states. Um, my home state of Nevada has proven that, where a very dynamic labor movement has completely revolutionized state politics and the quality of life for for people there, and continues to do so. Right? Um, and, do you credit and it
0: with well. the uh, political outcomes of this uh, current election? Sure. Yeah,
1: they're the mm-hmm. they're the force and have been for uh, you know for a long time. It's been a, it's been processed since the the 1990s. The hotel workers, the service workers, the hospital workers there, and and one of the reasons they've been so effective is that they are led by folks of color. They're closely connected to the immigrant rights struggle, um, to to black civil rights struggles, and they make those issues part of what their union fights for. Um, they, the, even their contract demands reflect a broad understanding of what working people want and need. And you know they've managed to become much more responsive. and And so you know, looking at New Orleans. Um, yeah i mean i'm certainly aware of the decline of manufacturing here um you know and and even the port and so forth um but i would say that you know there 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 is a dynamic working class organizing tradition in the city which i'm only still learning about um but i think about sort of working class organizations like acorn that had its start here or its biggest you know locals Uh, I've I've been starting to learn about the Worker Center for Racial Justice and the Congreso de Jonaleros and some of the other really exciting work that's that's happened here in recent years. Of course, the Welfare Rights Movement has made New Orleans an epicenter historically as well. Um, And those are all sort of labor struggles, right, as well as other kinds of justice, racial justice struggles, gender justice, and so on. Um, So for me, you know, there's nothing... Inherently um, valuable about a manufacturing job—that would mean that that's a job that can produce middle-class outcomes—that isn't also inherently valuable in a service job, or a hospital job, or a public sector job, or whatever. Um, and so the question is really how to how to get organized and how to change um, the balance of power, uh, not necessarily you know what what kinds of jobs we need. Um, clearly, working people, New Orleans everywhere need jobs that will provide them with you know security and living wages and so forth you know we need to have people have basic human rights in my view to health care and housing and so forth that somehow we need to figure out how to provide to everyone <laughs> um but and and i to me you know unions and other working class and civil rights organizations um historically that's that's where we've gotten Uh, those things, right? (laughs) To the extent that we have a welfare state in the United States, it's because of the labor movement and because of civil rights organizing, and and so that's, to me, the hope for the future as well.
0: So, yeah, now, I've also lived through a time when I felt that the Democratic Party lost its way, Um, and I I give a lot of credit for that to uh, Bill Clinton, who I'm not a big fan of, because I I didn't think that NAFTA was such a great um, direction for us to have gone in that did nothing but promote uh, manufacturing moving out of the country and I I think that um, and and not to mention welfare reform, you know which he he just adopted certain republican um, threads that Mm -hmm. um, I think. Uh, in part may have contributed to the disillusionment of people about the Democratic Party and how it was was or wasn't um, committed to the working um, classes of the of the country. And so um, I kind of when when people want to talk about how bad the Republicans have been for our country right now, I kind of say, well, you know what? The Democrats Mm -hmm. share the blame. They share the blame because they they at least have seemed to have abandoned, whether that's fair or not. the people who used to be the, the so-called core base for the Democrats. So so, how do you see that transforming? Now, now they feel, you know, they're all puffed up and, you know, proud of having survived what was supposed to be the red wave. But on the other hand, um, maybe there were some lessons that they sort of uh, learned and adopted themselves as the Republicans are going to have to now that they did not. And so I'm kind of putting you on the spot on your opinions on this, rather than your scholarship. <laughs> but um, I'm sorry, that's I'm an advocate more of, than a researcher, so I go right to the, the what I feel is 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 um, a key variable in how things have shaped up, and and this war that we're in, this the civil war, you know, civil war two, uh, between um, uh, the Republicans and the Democrats, but also um, the classes that are, are theoretically represented by those two. I, it's it's a depressing time. I mean, yeah, things came out better than we thought they would theoretically in this election, but not really when you have, when, if, if one of the two congressional houses will vote against anything that is put out by the other party. Um, that's not exactly progress. So I'm, I'm interested in perspective on that.
1: Sure, yeah. No, I'm, I'm always happy to talk politics. And to the extent that I have opinions, it's it's informed by my research, right? My reading of, of a million history books and my being out in communities and talking to folks. So where that has landed me is to, you know, to agree with you. I said that it was the labor movement and civil rights movements that gave us, you know, basic security and protections. It wasn't the Democratic Party, <laughs> right? Um, we had a new deal and a great society because of social movements, Um you know, I thought we had a chance at another one um, when Obama was elected, that if we'd been able to keep pushing, we might have gotten a little more done. Um, but, you know, the bottom line, I think, is that the, you know, both political parties have agreed on most things. <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we fundamentally don't practice much democracy in America. Um, and that's not just about January 6th. It's about the fact that, like, most people don't live engaged political lives, And we don't usually think that uh, ordinary folks should have a meaningful say in the in in the decisions that determine their lives. We expect other people to do it, and a lot of folks think they can just go vote every couple years, and that that's that's their civic duty. But um, you know, building a democracy is about much more sustained engagement than that. And um, and so you know, the Democratic Party is not. Accountable to a, a mass of people because because we aren't organized enough to to hold them accountable to that and um, you know so for for me the you know uh, right NAFTA was a disaster for the for everybody involved except for the corporations um, and that's not but
0: that make more money by the right. um, prices but paying a, a fraction of the labor costs they used to, to right pay. and you know and and just
1: just. You know, just last week was it or week before? You know, Joe Biden helped to debust the railroad workers' strike. Right, that here's a group of workers who um, apparently are not entitled to sick pay. Right, they can't be sick uh, like a worker everywhere else. Um, so, you know, to to me, there's deep, deep issues in terms of um, you know who who's doing the work and 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 also our ability to to say that labor has dignity and that folks should have basic security as a human right. Um, and that's not been on the agenda, I don't think, of, of either political party um anytime recently. You know, I will say one thing. I think Joe Biden did a, um, it was really exciting that they, during the administration, they had extended the child tax credit um, and produced what amounts to a, you know, a guaranteed minimum income, which was something that people have been fighting for, uh, you know, for a century <laughs> in the United States and longer. And um so I was really excited to see, you know, that tax credit extended and the effect it had on people who needed it, um, and you know that, that it really did stave off a complete depression during uh, the depths of the pandemic. Um, but I was really sad to see it expire, and um, and I was even more sad to see that that the Democrats didn't talk about it in the campaign, um, that they didn't make the case that they are the party that believes all people, you know, need to have a basic income and basic um
0: because they've adopted this position feeling that they have to sort of parrot the republican uh, position in order to get elected you know to be quote moderate Um, so let me just say one more thing
1: about that real quick which is that what i found in my research and i think we're seeing in places like georgia is that the power base that's going to take the democratic party away from that is in building coalitions right of people who actually believe in these values, right? And so that means, um, you know, we see Stacey Abrams doing this, right? We see the importance of, as Charles Blow put it in the column the other day, like a Black-led coalition behind Raphael Warnock. Um, you know, we're in a moment where, and, and the, the political scientist Steve Phillips writes about this too, right? Where it's possible to envision sort of new rainbow coalitions that are are really built from the left. And, um, and I think that's the Democrats' path toward both victory and doing something useful and that as they if they parrot republicans and and try to run for the center all the time in the south and, and elsewhere it, it's never going to work
0: so steve um i clearly can understand one of the reasons why you were anxious to have max <laughs> come to uno and in, in new orleans but I'm i'm curious to hear from somebody who has been here longer and um, has a perspective on the unique ways things work and don't work here. So um, what's your perspective on um, how um, Max's vision is going to be developed and evolve and work here, given right now a, a fairly sour attitude in this city about the present state of the city and our future i'm very worried about that sour feeling and the loss of people both those who are leaving and those who are not coming so i'm, I'm curious to hear your you know longer experience with things here and and how you feel about his, his um hopes
2: yeah well let me provide a little context um so i'm Uh, As you said, I'm with the University of New Orleans. I've been there about five years now. I'm an assistant professor of political science and about uh, three, maybe going on four years ago, um, the the dean at the time of of our College of Liberal Arts and uh, Human Education and Human Development, um, Kim Martin-Long, she came to me and she had uh, this vision, along with the provost, uh, Mayar uh, Amuzagar, Amuzagar, had this vision for a PhD in justice studies that would be interdisciplinary, that would be uh, applied and practical in terms of taking some of the tools and the skill sets and the knowledge we gain uh, in academia and directly relating that to the challenges that this city is facing and by extension that that cities around the, the country, around the world, places around the world are struggling with in terms of injustices. And um, it, was an ex- it was really exciting. I was extremely uh, flattered that she came mm-hmm. to me. I think um, she recognized I have certain managerial skills. In fact, uh, my background is and training is in public policy and administration. Um, when you're talking about organizing, I could be uh, accused of being an institutionalist. I sort of am, am on the other side, although I, I highly respect organizing movements and labor movements. Um, in fact, a personal personal anecdote, my uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is a pretty blue-collar, um, kind of unionized state, or at least was historically. It's part of
0: Pennsylvania.
2: Uh, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, um, home of the York peppermint patty, at least at some point, which is now, I think, being made by Hershey in Mexico, Um, but definitely a manufacturing kind of town and uh, my dad was a truck driver and and in the Teamsters Union until that got kind of dissolved and and receded in the 1980s um, under the Reagan administration. My mom was a public school teacher uh, actively involved in that union. And so I, I did sort of grow up with that as being taken for granted, kind of, I, I had, I experienced the benefits of organized labor and just sort of thought, well, this is just how things are. Uh, it's certainly a different thing, in, in particularly in the South and, and in New Orleans and Louisiana. Um, but in, at any rate, um, my my training, my skill set is more managerial, I suppose, in nature. And so... I saw myself as the person who just needs to get this program up and running get mm-hmm. through these bureaucratic hoops and hurdles that are everywhere in in a public university and and that's what we did
0: any, any uh university setting really right
2: <laughs> true yes okay. and so so that's what that's what we did um and Uh, Credit to to Dean Long, who's now um, stepped away from her administrative role, but is still, uh, you know, an an active professor and scholar. Um, And, uh, and over the last few years we got Board of Regents approval for this PhD in Justice Studies, which was a huge achievement because there has not been a new PhD at UNO in many, many, many years. Um, And particularly in the in the um, humanities and social sciences. Uh, and, and we uh, invited our first cohort of students in fall of 2021 uh, seven extremely talented bright folks who are really colleagues, I would say, and who came in with just tremendous lived experience and professional experience, in addition to graduate degrees and and sort of that academic uh, skill set. And, um, and then uh, this fall, we welcomed our second cohort of about um, 10 students. So we continue to kind of grow little by little, uh, a, another super impressive bunch. And I think it got to the point, I, I'm an untenured assistant professor and um, I go up for tenure next year. Um, and although I'm in a political science department, like I said, my background is in public administration. I have a tendency to be a little more apolitical I study and work with nonprofits in, in our city and I think we should be so proud of our vibrant nonprofit sector, in many ways by necessity, because they fill gaps that are left by the private sector and the public sector. Um, and I, I, I love the activi- activism within our nonprofits, but I didn't feel like I was the right person in the right position at the right time to really um, elevate this program and, and provide a leadership and a vision. For it. And so, in consultation with with Dean Long, um, we happened to get to know uh, Dr. Crockmal Max, and um, we're just so impressed with his scholar activism, with his um, with his grassroots kind of connections in and and how he could forge those connections in New Orleans. And he seemed and he's also a very established scholar. Um, and, and well-respected, tenured and and just has that in, uh, gravitas. And so he seemed like the, the perfect person to take this program to the next level, to lead it out of its, its uh, infancy stage into this new level of maturity where we're growing, where our students are now uh, writing research papers, where they are moving on to their dissertation research and really get that out into the world and bring this bring this uh, program to to that higher higher level, higher kind of functioning on a higher cylinder. And um, so far, it's that's exactly what he he's been doing, and it's just been a wonderful partnership, wonderful for me uh, in my development to have somebody that's more senior to look to for some guidance and. Um, i'm just so impressed with how quickly he has adapted and and made connections and built rapport in a city that i've only been here about 8 years but i i know firsthand and um that you really need to spend a lifetime here mm-hmm. to to really be in, ingrained in the city culture and and so um it's it's always a work in progress but he has he has jumped in faster than anybody i've i've ever seen um
0: it is, um, it is a city that is uh, more complicated than some, not all coming from New York. It certainly um, <laughs> is a, a more complicated place maybe, but um, it's, uh, it, it, the cultural richness of it is what um, attracts so many. And uh, to the extent that we can promote that uh, through both the kind of advocacy that Max is involved in and Steve, your public policy um, uh, orientation, I think, um, and, and, and you know that my commitment to it is very deep and I hope that uh, we um, involve in that coalition that you've been speaking of, Max, the um, creatives, the creative mm-hmm. economy, the cultural uh, resource and assets of the city and the people, because um, we have to keep them and we have to not lose them. And that has to do with their opportunities to be able to have families and raise kids and live here. And as you said, affordable housing, health issues, things like that are really critical, but support for what they do is also critical. And um, I think UNO is as, as close as you can come to an institution that uh, can, can um, really protect that. So uh, one of my teachers at uh, Cornell was Francis Perkins. Mm -hmm. And um, she was the secretary of labor under um, uh, FDR and WPA was a big part of my growing up only because I lived in a part of the city in the Bronx where Art Deco um, resulting from um, the WPA cultural programs was really important. So that's been an important influence for me. And it's an important influence here that people don't often recognize because just take City Park, and I I guess you've been to City Park by now, Max. Mm -hmm. You recognized the WPA influence, which was really uh, how the park developed further during a certain time when WPA really stepped in and made things happen, which hopefully this period that we're entering right now, I'm very concerned that this um, commitment to infrastructure and to... Um, jobs and uh, the workforce is going to filter into the cultural community as well. And unfortunately, we really haven't had a robust lobbying effort in that direction from the cultural community. I don't think they get it yet, how important this Mm. money is going to be. And when I see how it's being divvied up, and there was something in the paper, I think just last week that showed how that money's being divvied up, and there was no mention of culture in it at all. And our Mm. creative economy, Steve, we have to do something about this. But I mean, I've tried to work with people from the Arts Council and the city, and, and uh, Randy Haney is one of the chief lobbyists in the state who has an interest in the arts. And we ain't there yet. Mm-hmm. We have a way of saying, um, you know, that ain't there no more, but this, is a, this ain't there yet in terms of really mm-hmm. making sure that um, we see some of that money flow, not just to highways and tunnels and bridges, but uh, also to our work, our creative workforce. I'm sorry. As I said, I'm an advocate, so it, it creeps in. And um, I am glad you're here. Um, I'm glad Steve is here. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to what this alliance to talk about a coalition. That's a pretty strong coalition. Just <laughs> the two of you, and your cohorts. And I, um, I anticipate that it's going to have a substantial impact um, in the city. Um, I. Um, have inserted my opinion to some extent. You have presented a little bit of what you all are thinking. But before we close off this interview, because we are getting close to my time frame, um, is there anything, either Max or Steve, that you wanted to make sure we touched on that we didn't?
1: Uh, I'll just quickly say, well, thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks, Steve, for for the kind words. I'm so impressed by the work that Steve and everybody here did to build this program and set this great foundation. And I'm fortunate to step into you know the the product of all of that wonderful work you know for me that i do th- i agree with you that i think the university of new orleans is uniquely positioned to facilitate uh justice work in our community um you know if to the extent that people have opened doors to me i think that part of it is just that that's my affiliation that i come in from the city's university right and 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 UNO really has this mission to serve the community um mm-hmm and what better way to do that than amplifying you know the great work that's already happening on the ground helping to assist it by bringing our skills and knowledge and expertise um and you know uh, and i think what you said about you know making sure that 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 kind of cultural work is highlighted and supported is is incredibly important and um and again something that that the people who passed those laws should be very proud of and <laughs> you know, be very proud of the fact that we're we're using state money to hire artists and writers and and that's something that we should be doing and um, and so yeah for me you know,
0: we need to do a lot more of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, we don't do it enough but but I, I, I I'm you know I'm really excited about the opportunity and the potential of this program and our ability you know to bring people together, faculty, students, community members, um, and really uh, you know come up with creative new approaches to some of these long-standing justice issues and to to work collaboratively. Um, to, to chart some new directions. So I'm happy to be here and I hope this is the first of many conversations, Jean.
0: I was just gonna say, I will look forward very much to having you all come on on a regular basis and update me on projects that you're working on so that we could share it with, um, you know, our audience is a, a little bit um, uh, different from our, our home bases at WBOK and we have a substantial audience of color but we also have, um, as I say, the list that I use to communicate with people in the newsletter is contains everything from uptown garden clubs to downtown mm-hmm. um, activists and uh, anarchists for that matter. So um, uh, it's, it's a, an important audience for us to reach and I look forward to talking with you many times. Thank you so much, Steve, for putting us together and for bringing him here and for being here and um, let's, let's
2: uh, stay in touch, okay? And Jean, just real quick, the, the application deadline for the program is February 1st. Please, uh, if you're interested, reach out, justice at UNO.edu. We'd love to, to fill you in on the program to see what the connection may be. All you need is a bachelor's degree to apply. And and it's really the, the students, uh, the scholar activists, they bring their agenda. We don't impose an agenda. An agenda. It's, it's uh, very grassroots in that sense. And so the more diversity, the more passion we can bring into the program through the students who are admitted, that just strengthens everything and I think makes us a, a better community. And that's that's the goal. Couldn't agree more.
0: Look forward to um, very interesting developments with you all. So, um, by the way, have a nice holiday season. You too. <laughs> Talk Thank to you. you all right. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.
3: and only they- when it's Christmas time and new
0: ramp up through education because we haven't been um, keeping pace with the economy in our education programs for anybody, but particularly for people who are still climbing out of slavery. And I and I think also it's remarkable, we have to uh, um, to remind uh, the listener that, of course, as they know, uh, there are people who are still fighting um, uh, Acknowledgement of that history and its presence—the people who, for example, are trying to ban books in schools—that's um, just kind of beyond the pale. There, there's um, we we could go on forever about the dynamic that's going on right now. You know, um, but but, so but actually,
4: I there. actually disagree with you, Gene. <laughs> you okay. know, I think education is uh, a byproduct of of of, of things. It can't be the the the, the prime basis. Uh, some some people are, are going to do well in spite of their education because there's an economic basis that has been uh, handed down generation to generation. You know, so uh, reparations can be the situation that bridges the gap between uh, you, you know the economic layers, you know, and and the business uh, 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 exposure. All of that could could increase. So you know, it actually is a financial problem. That's how I would look at it. It's a financial problem because when when individuals have wealth and resources, uh, the education, the educational options around them are going to be better options versus just you know, Ooh. hey, well, you know, because oftentimes you need you need resources to activate uh, some of this ingenuity and, and and this great academic prowess. It takes resources to activate. Uh, things with it beyond just working, you know, working versus owning, you know, that that's that's a venture capital, these types of things. So it's a, you know, that that's the level of of uh, of change that's going to be required is a, a financial situation totally. In my opinion,
0: I, I I can I can see that too. I really can. Uh, I guess I'm just a little bit fixated on the fact that um, we are dealing with a highly um, evolving, revolutionizing economy that requires a very different um, skill set. Oh,
4: absolutely. Was needed absolutely. A,
0: a, 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 just a decade ago. And I don't feel that our um, uh, students and schools in too many places, and there are places where there's better, but that um, there's too many places where people are just not getting the tools to deal with the changing economy. So, and I I don't know that that depends on, I mean, I went to a public school in the Bronx in the South Bronx, that's where I'm originally from. And um, I got a lot of tools. I didn't get all the tools I needed, but I got a lot of tools. And I feel uh, the one thing I I wish that I had had back then, and I think that should be required course in school education is business management. Unfortunately, I never took business management. I think I'd be doing a little bit better right now had I had that. And I think that's true Mm -hmm. for most kids coming out of um, high school who have a vision, a talent. Uh, Maybe they have some resources, maybe they don't. There are people who do figure out how to in a sense, claim those resources, but um, I, I think that we're 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 not providing um, the the fundamental foundational skills that kids need to deal with this really accelerating changing economy. So I don't disagree with you, but I I my fu- my uh, obsession is is um, education. I, I hate hearing all the conversation about crime and courts and police and judges and all of that with no conversation or, or not that there's no conversation, but that there isn't as much attention at all given to education. If, if a kid was getting the opportunities that they know are going to grow their careers and they know they have a future, that's one kind of vision. And then if they don't have that and they're thrown to the streets, so to speak, that's a whole other vision. John, I wish we could just talk forever. I'm already way over the time that um, I had uh, uh, in the show. I may just break this into two parts and and put part of it in this show and part of it in the next show. We'll see how it works out. But okay. if that was the case, I'm, I'm definitely gonna, uh, we're gonna, we gotta talk some more. We gotta come. No, absolutely. But I also need your art, as you know, we've talked about for a major piece outdoors. We have to talk about that offline.
4: Oh, absolutely.
5: <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> Take care, right. I'm, I'm thrilled with the piece that you put in the show. Um, everybody in the audience, you must come to Cravasse 22 Riverhouse. That crazy name I came up with, it. it was really kind of a crazy name for an art space, but it had to do with the fact that the place where that show is, is where there was a huge crevasse, natural crevasse in the levee in 1922. Oh, wow. it was, it was the basis of the Orleans people in 1927 in the flood for for busting the, the levee back down in the same place again, which was a big mistake. It should have been above the city, not below. So it flooded St. Bernard for a second time. And it was a, just a, a long part of the long list of, of um, things that Orleans has done to St. Bernard that are not cool at all, including things mm. like the Costa canal and the upcoming plans for a, a containerized shipping port that'll just throw, you know, thousands of trucks on the on the highways of, of St. Bernard on the on the. Uh, so I couldn't resist reminding wow. everybody that that's still in play and that's a, a very dangerous um, and destructive concept, in my own opinion now. Um, Sunday 12 to 5 gumbo, um, macaroni and cheese from Rocky and Carlos, gumbo from two citizens in the area, Um, oysters from oyster royalty and um, music, and lots of really interesting and beautiful art, including the piece that John did called Nub, is that the name? Nub, Mm -hmm. you have to see Nub. Nub is really an unusual and very, Beautiful and, uh, and and it's an important piece. I wish I had. Well, the thank fun. you,
4: thank you very much.
0: By myself, but I think that and also I want to say that John and and some other um, African American African American artists in the city are really underappreciated. He's an important artist, and you need to see his work. Thank you for um, coming back after we couldn't get our tech worked out. <laughs> so uh, I really appreciate your time.
5: We'll you take care of John
0: season two.
4: All right. take care now.
3: a little boy who grew up to be the savior he the of the world. Here was the light Mmm mm-hmm. the light Let me tear you my hair Oh Holy oh, oh. oh, night The stars will cry it was the night of our dear sea.
5: My
3: mind goes back, y'all. Oh yeah, y'all got to same it again, y'all. Well, I'll tell my friends about it. I got to tell my friends about it. It was the night of all nights, y'all. Give me love, and honey.
5: oh, oh, yeah.
3: I'll tell you about Keep on singing. You he was born, and you you he was born in a manger. To the holy of the stream. He was born in a state. if There were no one in him. And me. all of the cattle. They me. surrounded my Savior. Kept him warm. Oh, Kept him warm. Oh, holy. Now you all got to remember. By the name of Jesus, will save you. Well, yeah, on, well, y'all keep on singing. On, keep on singing. On, I'm getting happy in Him. Yes, I am. On, I feel like weeping for a night. Thank you, thank you, Lord, it was the night when my say was born. Y'all know y'all got to say it one more time for me before I go.